Welcome to season four, episode 10 of the Not Your Mama's Autism podcast. I'm Lala Dada Ali. In this episode, we speak with an award-winning autistic filmmaker, musician, and activist who shared her story of being institutionalized in such a raw way. Despite her life-changing experience, Jennifer Masumba continues to choose the light in seasons where things seem so dark. I thought this discussion would be the perfect way to wrap up this season and sum up one of the recurring themes in the advocacy work my family and I partake in. The goal is not to ignore the darkness and act like everything is okay all the time. The goal is to share and find strength in each other's stories in a world that is not always kind, inclusive, or empathetic. So, with that in mind, let's get started. Jen, welcome. Welcome to the Not Your Mama's Autism podcast. Thank you so much for being on today. You're welcome. You are a Renaissance woman. You are a musician. You're a writer. You're an author. What aren't you? are a filmmaker. You dabble in quite a bit. So before we dive into all of the ways upon which your art manifests itself, let's start at the beginning. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Massachusetts, and I grew up in Andover, Massachusetts, which was a nice, quiet suburb north of Boston. I have two two brothers and a sister. I'm the youngest, and both my parents was raised by both my parents. Yeah, it was a, a pretty nice setting to grow up in. So you were the baby, okay? Yeah. The baby. The baby. The baby's I. I have this theory that the babies are have more freedom to chase what they truly want to be. <laughs> yeah, my dad, he was a um, cardiologist in internal medicine, and he was determined that one of his kids was going to be a doctor. Pretty much locked on to one of my brothers in particular, <laughs> um, who really got the pressure. But he used to give us, like, after dinner, he would take out a model of the heart and give us, like, a lesson on the heart, just trying to, like, provoke our interest in medicine. So I thought that was really cool that he wanted to pass that along to us and that he he made those efforts you know to show us what he does and what he loves so he was he was pretty cool like that (laughs) yeah I'm my family's originally from Nigeria and before we started recording you told me your dad's from Malawi so the running joke is that if you have an African immigrant parent they're going to try and get you into the medical field in some way (laughs) shape or form (laughs) yes Definitely. I've seen that definitely firsthand. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk. um, You are autistic. Tell us about when you first learned of your diagnosis. And just generally speaking, when did you first realize that either people treated you differently or maybe you felt different? Well, I was diagnosed about 10 years ago, and when I got to the place where I live now, 
but I noticed my difference. I would say second grade, like flat out second grade. I remember, I remember changes happening to me. I remember getting, starting having tics in second grade. OCD hit me in second grade, and that's when I kind of looked around and I noticed that other kids and even my brothers and sister, like, like they didn't do these things that I was compelled to do. And they seemed so calm and not anxious about everything like I was. So I definitely noticed really early on. So did you feel the freedom that you could talk to someone about it at such a young age? Or do you feel like you started masking then? I started asking immediately. I know my parents didn't mean it, but my brothers would do like a lot of silly things and a lot of just ridiculous things, just being boys and fooling around. And my dad and my mom would joke like, "Oh, we're gonna, they're gonna take you away in the in the little white coats, or they're gonna come and get you." And my brothers understood that as a joke, but I didn't. And I literally thought that I would get taken away if anyone found out about these things I was doing because I knew they were like, they made no sense. I knew that logically, that these movements and these things made no sense. And I was also very embarrassed. And I just didn't want anyone to know that I was compelled. And I believed that because they started so quickly, like literally overnight. The the tick started one day when I was outside playing, riding on my bike. Like I just had this urge to roll my eyes in the back of my head. And it just never went away. But I was thinking just as quickly as it hit me, it's going to go away, of course. You know, that was my natural thinking. Like, well, if this can start all of a sudden, then it's, I'm just going to wake up tomorrow and it'll be gone. Okay, tomorrow. No. Okay, maybe tomorrow. And I literally kept that going for years. That tomorrow when I wake up, it'll be gone. Same with the obsessions. And I was just a fight that I fought myself. I mean, my mom, she knew I was struggling I couldn't hide everything. I used to be obsessed with her dying in a car crash. So before she could go anywhere, we had to go through this long ritual of saying goodbye and I love you and certain things I had to say. And if anyone interrupted, we had to start over. And she took me to, to a counselor. And, but I managed to fool her too. Like I was a very smart kid and I just knew how to mask and I just wouldn't talk about those things to her. And she tried. She tried to pry it out of me. I remember she discovered I loved Hungry Hungry Hippos, the game. And, and my mom wouldn't let me have that game. I guess it wasn't educational. And so well, she said, well, if you talk in therapy, you can play hung, we'll play Hungry Hungry Hippos in the end. And I gave her just enough so I could play Hungry Hungry Hippos, but not enough that they could make the connection. And of course, I wish they had known, but I was a very good masker. So how did your diagnosis come about? Did you feel one moment or one day, I should say, that you just didn't want a mask anymore? And how, how did the diagnosis come about? Well, my behaviors got more and more dangerous. I mean, it started with obsessions and tics and then the frustrations frustration set in more as I got older. Depression set in when I got into my teenage years because at least when I was a kid, it was like, Kids would play with me. If I had the four square ball, then kids were going to play with me because I had the ball. You know, it, the rules were pretty much clear when I was little. 
about how to have friends or how to play with other kids. It wasn't so much um, a social thing. It was just more like, oh, you got a ball? Okay, let's play. <laughs> but when I started to get into well, middle school and high school, kids started like liking boys and liking girls and having parties and things just got really murky and I wanted nothing to do with it. I was just terrified and so I got left out more and more. I got bullied. I was bullied when I was little too for being for being the only black kid in the whole school. You know, there were some boys that really teased me. But when I got older, I just Actually, they almost forgot about me, the kids. Like, they didn't even bully me anymore. I just was, like, invisible. I became invisible more. And I almost missed the bullying because at least they, they noticed me. Like, I was somehow part of things still. But when I became invisible, I got really depressed. And I started hurting myself and stuff and banging my head a lot in frustration. I would do that as a child, too. But also, it was a little more, like, some kids do do that, so it's just another one of those things my mom would tell the therapist, like, she does this and she does this. But it just got increasingly dangerous, and my parents got increasingly worried about my depression and stuff. So you said it was 10 years ago when you got diagnosed. How, how old were you? Well, I'm 45 now, so I think I came to this place, I think I was like 33 or 34 when they diagnosed me, I think I masked less and less when I was in placement because I wasn't as weird. I felt a little more like, okay, everybody's kind of like me. So I wasn't as uptight and and trying to, to look like the others. And it just gets to the point where you can't anymore. I feel like masking is one of those things where you can do it for a while. You could even do it for years in order to survive, but you can't do it forever and be okay. That's just how I feel. So it, it became impossible to hide because problems stack upon problems. You know, you have OCD and you have autism and then that develops you more problems, the anxiety, depression. Then I, I really had trouble understanding other people's facial expressions. And I was always getting into arguments and fights because someone just looked at me and I'd say, why are you looking at me? You're going to do something bad to me. And then, you know, I'd get restrained or hurt myself. And I just didn't understand life at all. Just became completely. And people, because I was so intelligent, people assumed that I knew better. And I got treated very badly by the staff because because they felt like I was doing it on purpose or that I, I was just a bad person. And so I got treated as such for a long time. When you're referring to the staff, you mean the people at your, at the center that you live in or... Yeah, not the one I'm at now, but in the state hospitals, the right, the the paid hospitals, the residential schools. I was in them all, group homes. Then you get a record, and they say, "Oh, she's just belligerent, or she's this or that." So the next place you go doesn't even give you a chance or try to figure out what's wrong. They just go with what the last people said about you. I'm not. I'm not big on blaming race about things, but I don't know if that had anything to do with it as well. It's possible, but I'll have no way of knowing without like going back and viewing from the outside. But I was treated like like I was just a bad person, just a very bad person. 
does this predate your diagnosis? Yes. 10 years ago? Yes. So it took you a while to find this diagnosis. You're, as you're talking about your journey, you didn't have, it appears, a diagnosis. So how did you feel? Did you feel like you didn't have the full picture? Yes. I knew. Let me tell you this. I knew. When I was in, like, seventh grade and, you know, kids start talking about their life, their future life, you know, I want to get married, I want to have kids, I want to go to college, I want to be this career or that career. Something inside me knew that wasn't going to be my life, that that I was different and that somehow I would say, yeah, I want to go to college, but on the inside I was like, I'm never going to make it, like, I'm, I can't make it in college, I'm not. This is not going to be my, I just knew my life was different and that I was different. And I I couldn't put a finger on it. And again, it, it made me feel embarrassed and I didn't talk to my parents about it. But I just knew I was different. I feel like my family knew I was different as well. Um, But we all just kind of played along like it was okay. Yeah, when you said that you knew that college wasn't for you, for example... What made you think college wasn't for you? Was it because you thought that maybe just socially they weren't ready? The whole thing. I just was not maturing at a rate. I was a lot less mature than the other kids. As the older we got, the less mature I appeared and was. And so, like, I couldn't even go somewhere without my mom still. And, you know, so thinking about going to college or doing all this driving even. or And he was like, how can people even drive? There's, like, so many things happening at once. I'm not going to be able to do this. I never wanted to drive. Most kids can't wait to turn 16. I wanted nothing to do with it because I knew. I knew I'd be too overwhelmed with all the information coming in. To be able to drive. I just instinctively knew, but I didn't have a name. It was the 90s still, early 2000s, and I had no idea. So, Are your various forms of art an outlet for you? Oh, definitely. Especially for my, my dealing with my past and also dealing with the, my my thoughts now. I, the other day I, I said something really... I don't know, just really ridiculous to my friends in an attempt to make conversation. And it was like a really not good thing to say. And they didn't react well. And I wrote a song about it, you know, because that's how I deal with it. That's how I deal. And I'm finding that when I post these little songs on social media, I get a lot of feedback that, oh my goodness, you get me, or oh my goodness, I feel the same way, or I do that same thing. And I think a lot of people who are on the spectrum, or maybe don't know they're on the spectrum, or just uh, like in that direction, you know, closer to the being on the spectrum, uh, feel alone and think no one understands these weird little snippets that, that might happen. And so I kind of found myself a little a little niche about the music I write, and the people that listen to it. How would you describe your process when you take on a new project? You just gave a great example that something happened and it kind of just inspired your art. Is that typically how it happens? Or do you have a method as to how you, uh, like uh, the same method you use over and over again? 
it usually starts with a, a song, like a, a melody or some chords on my guitar. Sometimes I just like to strum. And I'm still learning guitar. I'm, I'm a lot more proficient on the piano. So on the guitar, I'll just move my fingers around and try to make new chords. And I say, oh, that's a nice chord. Let's write a song. And then I'll kind of start hearing the words. The words will come to me that go with that color of music that I'm playing. And another way I get inspired, this is kind of funny, happened today, is in conversations. Because I say things all the time and my sister's always like that needs to be a song today she was trying to talk to me about like business stuff I don't know emails we had to deal with and I was like you know what that's a Monday problem and she was like that's a song you know so I wrote it down that's a Monday problem and I'm gonna write a song about it because I think a lot of people can identify with that like let's just relax and let that be a Monday problem That 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 is so true. There are <laughs> several things in life that are a Monday problem. So yes. I love the way you put that into words. <laughs> As you go through your process, like your art is you're making art in your various forms. How do you know when you're done? How do you know when you you're ready to release it out into the world? I think I'm kind of different in the fact that I hear a lot of artists say. They're never, they like, they keep working on it and working on it. It's got to be perfect. There's, I've got to keep watching it and reviewing it and tweaking it and stuff. But me, I'm so hyper and so like, I, um, at the, at this time in my life, I'm very prolific with my art and I just want to get to like, I want to get it done. I, I, I feel as soon as it's, as I finish that last note and like tweak it, I'm like, it's good enough because there's this thing like, if you wait till something is when you feel it's perfect, you're probably never going to release it into the world and it's never going to get out there. But if you do something till the till you feel it's done and it's it's good and it's great and it's great to you, put it out there because things can always be polished and finished. But if you never try, you never know what you're going to get. So I'm very hyper with with finishing things. I'm just like, okay, this is done. Yeah, this is good enough. I like this. Yeah. And I'll just do it. Even though like that one note was flat and this, I, I, I say, but, but I like, I really like the vibe. So I'm going to release it. So <laughs> it reminds me of this old saying, um, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. So let's talk about your writing. When did you first start writing? Fun fact, I started writing during the pandemic, the original pandemic of 2019-2020. I started, I wrote a song that was like a a Christian song and my pastor just loved it. And from there, I just started writing more songs. And then I got inspired to write. Everybody's always said, Jen, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. And I said, well, I got time now. So I <laughs> started writing my book and it was um it was it went really well i i actually when i was a kid i hated writing but i always did really well so i had a te- the teachers would especially this one teacher she really encouraged me in creative writing because i didn't like doing it because i didn't like being told what i had to write but when i did it i did it i had gotten some recognition when i was little about my my writing so i think i've always had this skill but i never thought i liked it but the pandemic made me try new things, and I just, as I practiced, things just started flowing out of me that I didn't even know were in there. 
So what about writing did you originally not like? I I thought it was a lot of work. I thought it was like it's hard. I have to think and then I have to like write. <laughs> and especially looking at a blank page, it's overwhelming. But then I started doing research about like outlines and even for my book, I downloaded like a template to help me organize my book. And I found tools to help me get over that empty page scary feeling. And that that made me get past that part and start to enjoy the process, especially writing songs because they're shorter and I can finish them sooner and see the fruits of my labor. That's a good segue into making music. When did you start making music? Well, I've played piano since I was three. My dad brought us home a piano, much against my, I think my mom didn't want him to get it, but he's like, I want my kids to have a piano. After my brothers got done banging on it and went away, I went up to it and I was very like, I methodically explored the keys. I didn't just hit the keys. I wanted to hear each note and I was just entranced. And my brother started taking lessons and I would sit in the in the lady's living room with all her cats and wait for him with my mom. And she let me in one day to play the piano and I started playing what he'd been practicing because I was hearing it over and over. And she's like, oh, my goodness, because I, I was able to play with no music. I was just able to play things that I heard. So that's when I started learning more piano. And then I started violin in third grade. And all the way up until I was 15, I was very much into music, especially orchestra. And then the bad years hit and I lost everything of everything musical was just gone. Wasn't gone, apparently, but it was buried. When did you start making films? Well, I started with YouTube videos, which aren't really proper films, but I started making uh, vlogs about my life back in 2015. And then I ended up getting, I won't say discovered, but quote unquote discovered for an A&E show through my YouTube channel. It was called The Employables, and it was about people on the spectrum getting jobs in the community. And I looked into it and I decided, yeah, I'll do this show. And during the filming of that show, I fell in love with the cameras and the audio equipment and the official way, you know, the director and all the roles people had. I was like, this is fun and I want to make real films. So I bought some books and I watched a lot of YouTube videos and I made my first film. It was called Not Today Salad. I was at my mom's house and all I had was my iPhone but after that, I just fell in love with making films and wanted to do that. Just wanted that to be part of my life. You mentioned earlier that the bad years hit. Expand upon that. Let us know what you mean. You alluded to being in facilities um, as much as you're comfortable sharing and it sounds like you went through a very difficult time and it's only natural for that to affect how you express yourself. So when you said it was buried and you weren't able to make art, explain to us a little bit more about what you mean. So when I was 15, um, my mom was diagnosed with cancer and 
she was my world because she was what I held on to. Everything was wrapped around her, my entire existence. She was all I knew. And so I, I panicked and I got very unwell. I guess it became very apparent. I, I couldn't see myself from the outside. I felt it on the inside. And a, a doctor recommended I be hospitalized. And I never came out of that hospitalization, basically. It just led to more, more treatment centers, residential schools. Eventually, I ended up in the state hospital because no one wanted me back. Like I said, I was just considered a bad just a bad kid and a bad young adult and no one really understood me so I ended up in a state hospital and definitely that was where I was gonna stay and they were medicating me like crazy I was like almost 300 pounds it was just I was dying there and um I ended up they some this place comes along supposedly they have a a program that can save my life and you know my family hears that and I get signed up for it and they insisted on taking guardianship of me getting like a court appointed guardian over me and that was the big that's a big red flag just if anybody's listening and any program wants to take over guardianship beware so once they had guardianship of me even my family couldn't save me they employed their tactics of behavior modification, which includes electric skin shock, which is not to be confused with ECT, which is done, you know, for depression and it's done under anesthesia with doctors. That's a completely different treatment. This treatment was meant to hurt. We had electrodes strapped to our bodies, on my arms, my, my legs, my stomach, my hands. And every time I quote-unquote misbehaved, I was shocked. Now, misbehavior could be something like banging your head, or it could be something like tensing your body, or me tensing my fingers for more than three seconds, or rocking too much, or saying no to the staff. They abused their power. They abused this 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 permission that they had and um, I was there for seven years and it was the worst time of my life I was terrified for seven years it was just like being imagine your most anxious moment and then that just being the status quo for seven years straight like the highest anxiety you've had and just let it sit there that was my life my heart was just constantly beating fast. I would get dizzy. I was, I even had like these seizure type episodes in the beginning, which I don't even know if it was a seizure or if it was such overwhelming anxiety that I lost complete control of my body, my bladder, everything to the point where I was taken to the hospital because it, it appeared I was having seizures. It was just terrifying all the time. And so those were the bad years. Yeah. Seven whole years. How did, how did you get through that? I, I went away. Like I split myself into two Jennifers, and so there was Jennifer that deals with every that deals with right now, that deals with being shocked, that deals with being petrified, and that deals with surviving because you had to be very, you had to be very savvy. And I'm not saying I'm the only one that was savvy. All the clients became savvy there, no matter what their 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 diagnosis. 
about surviving because you had to appease the staff. You had to kind of, you had to be in their favor or else they would find extra reasons to hurt you. So there was that Jennifer that focused on surviving, on getting on the staff's good side, you know, on pretending like I, 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 yes, I know I'm bad. I need treatment, you know, type of thing. Then there was the other Jennifer that was hiding where I hid the, the most precious parts of my heart. Like those parts that God gave me, that the joy that I know he gave me that I had when I was a little girl, the, the, the love I had for life, everything beautiful that I saw, the music, the words, all of that was hidden away because I didn't want them to, to, to taint that. I didn't want them to touch that. So that was hidden away. I never showed that to them. So there was, there was two, there was two of me and, and, and that's how I survived. How did this chapter in your life ultimately end? How did you end up in the facility you are now? Cause you seem to be in a much better place. How did you physically come out of that? Physically, I came out of it because one day a, my lawyer came to see me, my court-appointed lawyer. He he said, well, they you have another, um, because they put me on a GD4, which was a stronger shock. And he said, they want to go and renew your guardianship at the court. Do you have any objections? And usually I'll just be like, whatever, because I knew there was nothing I could do to fight this. But something in me says, Jen... You need to go to that court this time. I said, yeah, I want to be my own guardian, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I just told him, he says, you do? And he says, do you even know how to get insurance? Or like ridiculous questions that things I could learn. And I, and I said, yes, I want to be my own guardian. He said, okay. So I was scheduled to go to court. And I wrote the judge a letter. And we were sitting in front of the judge. And my family was there. My mother and my brother were there. And the lawyers from the facility were on this side. And I read my letter to the judge. And I was made out to be so aggressive and unable to function. And the judge said, did you write that or did someone help you? I said, no, sir, I wrote that myself. He said, why is this woman being subjected to this treatment? And why are her family who's sitting here not her guardian's? You know, when they're perfectly willing, they're here. They want to be her guardians. So long story short, we had a little recess. I told the, my lawyer said, Jen, the judge wants to make your, your family your guardians today if you'll agree to give up being your own guardian. And I said, let's do it because I knew that was my ticket out. So they became my guardians and then they started working on getting me out of there. How would you describe this current chapter in your life? This current chapter? I'm flying now. It's like, so when I came to my new program, it was very hard at first. I was a lot of adjustments. I had a lot of issues with trusting staff and just being terrified. I still have nightmares every night about the last place, but I got better and better after a couple of years, I really calmed down, settled into, made myself a little life here. Um, started making friends in the community, going to church, and feeling safe. Because I felt safe with my staff here. 
and they understood me here. They took the time. They ignored like what my last placement had said about me because I saw the report that they sent with me and they just kind of started from scratch about with me, you know, to to figure out, you know, who I was, what was really going on. When they diagnosed me with autism, my I, I was like embarrassed. My mom told me and I really didn't want to talk about it. And then she's like, well, I'm going to send you a link to an article. And when you're ready, you can read it <laughs> and, you know, see how much your life reflects this article. And so I read it and I was like, oh, my goodness. And that's when I started to forgive myself because I hated myself a lot because I blamed myself for every single little thing that happened to me. And once I started to learn that these certain things that were happening to me weren't my fault and that it was something I needed to understand about myself and just learn, I had to learn, I, I got better. And now I'm just flying, I'm creating, I'm, I'm, I feel loved, I feel happy and free and it's amazing. That is so good to hear. Just listening to what you've been through is a lot. I can only imagine living the life you've lived. Talk to me a little bit more. We talked earlier about having art, art be this outlet for you. What does legacy mean to you through your art? Is there a hope that you mentioned earlier you hope that other people know that they're not alone is that what you hope to continue to do through your art i do hope to leave a legacy it started out with just helping helping myself you know i thought this is helping me to express myself but then people were responding that it was helping them and i learned something from that and so I do hope that my my art can be there for people who need it to realize that these 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 really strange feelings or situations or things you think no one else understands it can help them because if I had that when I was a kid if I had seen heard a song one of my songs about you know what it's like to have autism um or even just see myself on TV, someone like myself, like they like they do now, I would have been a lot better off and I wouldn't have been afraid to talk to my family. I don't think I would have mashed so much and I would have been able to get help a lot sooner and the right kind of help. You are a very talented autistic woman of color in this space. Who else in this space do you admire? I have a lot of music uh, musical in inspirations, women of color. And I remember when I first heard Tracy Chapman's Fast Car, I was a changed person because until then I only listened to music like, oh, it's top 40, you bop to it or whatever. You don't really care about the words at all and usually they're not very meaningful. But Fast Car like cracked the top 40 or whatever. And I was like, it's a story. She's telling me, I feel like I know part of her life now because of this story she's telling or this person's life that she's talking about. And I realized that music could be a story and I latched on to that. And also my mom had told me my dad and them used to listen to Odetta and she has a song called Hit or Miss. And it 
it was definitely ahead of its time because it was like, I just got to be me. Yeah, and it's just hit or miss. And it was just about being yourself. And so those are two of my biggest, like, I, I love Joan Armitrading too and Nina Simone. So those are my four. <laughs> what do you like most about being an artist? What I like most about being an artist is being able to connect with other people in ways that I can't really connect like in a in a face-to-face interaction. I like being able to connect on a deep level where it's almost like I can say my feelings in a code. Writing a song is like writing in code. Sometimes I put feelings in there that I'm not ready to share, but they're in that song. What is most challenging about being an artist? Most challenging is when I get like a block. So maybe I'm too lately in the past couple of weeks, I've had a little bit of a block. I haven't been able to write as many songs. So I think the hardest part is when I get that block and I feel like I, I could be creating, but I'm not. But I think that's also a good time to just rest and reset yourself. But it's frustrating for me. You are a strong autistic voice in this space. How do you think as a society we can increase the chances of hearing more from the gen Simbas of the world? Hmm. That's a good question. Because I see them, I see attempts being made to put more, put more people of color to the forefront and stuff. And I think that's great, but I do think that we need to be open-minded to listen to these stories and things from people that you might think aren't able to create. But if you, if you stop and take a look and just give it a chance, and give that person a chance, like everybody else, on an equal level. But open your mind to talking to people with autism. Like, I usually I, I don't like to tell people I'm autistic right off the bat because I think they're just going to be like, okay, we'll just assume she's down here. And they, a lot of them do. I went into a, a music studio the other day and was talking to the guys for like 45 minutes and I could tell they were just like, okay, yeah, but you really need to have professional players, blah, blah, blah. And they're telling me all this stuff and I was like, do you mind if I play one of my songs? We put it on Spotify and their whole faces changed and they were like, oh my goodness. And they said, honestly, we were not expecting this. And I was really... I was really just happy with their honesty. Like, I wasn't offended because they were honest with me. And they just said, we were not expecting this level from you. I think that's a really good thing, too. Just people admitting, like, maybe they weren't expecting that from a person on the spectrum. But I guess there's no easy answer to that. But that's just a little bit how I feel about the whole situation. So definitely, I just believe it's like, open your mind and keep your expectations Don't set your expectations low. Set your expectations where you're setting them for every other person. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe. If you're interested in how this podcast came to be, check out season one of the podcast in its entirety. I've also decided to share parts of our story in written form through a monthly column titled The Caregiver's Chronicles. If you're interested, you can check it out at psychcentral.com. That's 
psychcentral, all one word, dot com, a division of Healthline Media. You can also follow us on social media at at Not Your Mama's Autism on Instagram and at Not Your Mama's Autism on Facebook. Now, as we do at the end of every season, we will be taking a short hiatus. So, we will be seeing you soon. Looking forward to July 2022, where we'll be a bit more refreshed. As always, thank you for your support. See you soon. Not Your Mama's Autism Podcast is hosted and written by my mom, Lola Dada Ali, and it's also co-written and produced by me, Fella Ali. My dad, little sister Alero, and I are all occasional contributors. My dad, Tosin Ali, also helps produce sometimes. Big thanks to my aunt, Olane Williams Ali, who did our graphic design. See you guys soon.